you're new this morning, again, we want to welcome you. We're glad you could be with us today. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 11, so if you want to grab your Bibles or if you want to follow along on your device or the screen behind me, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And as you're turning there, again, I want to encourage you, if you're new around here, uh, to fill out a Connect card, get to know us. Uh, we would love to serve you and figure out how we could be a blessing in your life. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor. I would love to get to know you after service if you have a few moments. First uh, Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at the whole chapter today, which is only 15 verses. So if you haven't read the Bible this week, here you go. Here's your Bible reading. First Samuel chapter 11. Verses 1 through 15. Hear the reading of God's word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there was no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to uh, Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, "Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, uh, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen." Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh of Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. And therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that, the, no, so that no two men of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. And so, Lord, make us a people who listen to you. Make us a people who, with open arms, open hearts, open minds, receive what you are saying to us today. 
Lord, we, we want to be people who are not just hearers but doers. Give us the faith, the gift of faith, to trust you at your word and to respond to what you say. Lord, make us into the image of Christ today as we worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Jerry West is considered one of the greatest basketball players of all time in the NBA. He's not the greatest. We won't get into that debate. But he is one of the greatest. In fact, in his illustrious career, he had many different uh, titles and nicknames. And In fact, he was at one point called the Logo. Because if you didn't know this about the NBA, Jerry West is actually the silhouette of the NBA logo. So if you've ever seen the famous red and blue logo, there's a silhouette of a man playing basketball. That is Jerry West. He is the logo. And he got that nickname because he, he was this stunning player who was always able to do things under pressure. And so he got this name and this reputation as someone who could perform in the hardest moments. And then it was a shock in 2011 when he came out with his autobiography, his memoir, that was telling his story because the people expected that he would tell his story of all of his accomplishments, of all of his achievements, right? And instead, he tells the story of his struggles. He tells the story of the hidden struggles of his anxieties, his depression. And this is shocking to people because one of his other nicknames was Mr. Clutch. Mr. Clutch, who during the games, he would take the big shots. He would make the, the big game-winning shots. In 1970, in the NBA Finals, he made a shot to win the game. He was Mr. Clutch. And so on the, on the court, he looked like Mr. Clutch. On the court, he was always cool under pressure. On the court, he looked like he had it all together. On the court, it looked like nobody could get to him when he was playing. No one could get into his mind. No one could rattle him. He was Mr. Clutch. But off the court, off the court, secretly and silently, he was suffering. He was struggling deeply. He, he it turns out, was struggling with severe anxiety, severe depression. He would leave the games and, and go hide out by himself. And no, no one knew that this was happening. No one knew until he took the courage to say, I was struggling. What looked like on the outside, I had it all together, really on the inside, behind closed doors, I was a different person. Now, you hear that story of Jerry West and, and you realize, man, it takes a lot of courage to confess your struggle and you start to realize if you, like me, have struggled in the past or maybe you're struggling right now, you realize I am not alone. I'm not alone. There's many of us in this room today who are silently struggling, but on the outside, everything looks fine. On the outside, you look like Mr. or Miss Clutch. You look like in all the moments you've got it all together. It looks like, man, you're going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And it looks like you've pulled it all together and somehow, miracle of miracles, everything seems to work. But behind closed doors, in the privacy of your life, you're silently struggling. Struggling with anxiety, struggling with worry, maybe struggling with depression. There's, there's these struggles behind the scenes that are nagging at you, worries that are deep, that am I good enough, is it going to work out, is this what God has really called me to, can I make it through this, is this ever going to end, 
all kinds of questions that swirl around in your life, and you're wondering, am I alone in that? I want to tell you, first of all, you're not alone. There's a lot of people silently struggling. But second of all, God speaks into that worry, into that anxiety, into that suffering. He speaks hope. God wants to speak hope into the restlessness of our hearts. He wants to take all the things that, that maybe no one else sees, and he says, I want to speak hope into that. And so today we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel for the past couple of weeks, and last week we looked at how the people of Israel demanded a king. They came to Samuel and they said, basically, you're not doing your job and your sons are not doing a good job, and so we want a king. We don't want God to be our king anymore. We want someone else to be our king. We're tired of trusting God, whom we can't see, to be our savior, so we want someone else that we can see to be our savior. And so God, when he hears their request, he he gives them what they ask for. He says, okay, if this is what you want, let me let you know what this is going to be like. And they still say, yeah, 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 we want a king. And so he gives them a king. And in chapter 9, which we didn't look at, uh, we, we skipped over 9 and 10. 9 and 10 is basically the story of how God chooses a king for them. God chooses this man named Saul. And now Saul steps into this role, and Saul looks like a king. I mean, Saul is tall, and he's handsome, and he's strong, and he's, he's got all this promise, right? He's the stereotype of what you might think of when you think of someone who might give you security and strength. And yet, even when they, uh, when they, choo- or they hear God choose Saul, they hear God proclaim Saul to be the king that's chosen, there are still people who doubt. There are still people who, even though they get exactly what they ask for, they still say, can he really save us? And so this whole story in chapter 11 is really an answer to that doubt, really an answer to that question, can he really save us? And God gives an answer that they probably were not expecting. And so what I want to look at is is how God saves us from this restlessness, this worry in our hearts. So first, let's look at a restless heart. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point I want to look at is a restless heart. Look at verse 1 with me. This is how the story begins. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Now, up until this point, Israel has been concerned about the Philistines, who are to the north of them. That was their major threat. And now all of a sudden they've got this threat to the east of them, which are the Ammonites. And so you start to get this picture of Israel feels closed in on, like the walls are closing in. There's danger on every side. We thought the the Philistines were our big threat, and now the Ammonites show up. And Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, his name means serpent, snake. Not the kind of name you want to name your child. I mean, this guy was just ruthless. He was ruthless, and he was going from place to place, wiping out these smaller cities, and now he shows up to Jabesh Gilead, and the people immediately panic because he has them surrounded. Right? He surrounds their city, and they know that he is going to destroy their city like he's destroyed all these other cities, and so they start to panic, and they start to plead, will you have mercy on us? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'll have mercy. I won't wipe out your city, but here's my deal. 
I'll pluck out all your right eyes. That way, they can't fight back. Right? They, they, they won't have the ability to have an army to fight back if all of them are struggling to see. But yet, they still will have the ability to farm. And so this was his tactic. His tactic was, basically, you can't fight me, but you'll work for me. And so he'll turn all of them into his slaves. Some mercy, right? Well, the elders of Jabesh try to buy some time. Look at what they say in verse 3. It says, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now, amazingly, Nahash agrees to this. He, he only agrees, presumably, because he's so arrogant, he thinks in seven days, there's no way they're going to find enough help to defeat me. And so he says, yeah, take your seven days. Go, go find somebody. So now they have seven days to find a savior. Think about how ironically tragic that is. This is Israel. This is God's covenant people. This is the people who had just been delivered from the Philistines because of God's power and mercy. This is the people who all throughout the book of Judges have watched God deliver them over and over and over and over again. This is Israel who had just been delivered just a few generations before from Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world. And it doesn't cross their mind that maybe God could be their Savior. They say, yeah, give us seven days for us to go find a Savior, for someone who could deliver us. And you can tell this is their mindset in verse 4. It says that all the people wept aloud when they heard the news. Why do they weep? They weep because God is absent from their thinking. God is absent from their framework. Listen, fear, fear is present when God is absent. Fear is present when God is absent. Let me, let me try to break that down for you for a, a moment. For many of us, this, this restlessness in our heart, it, it really begins with pride. It begins with pride, with this deep uh, conviction that I can save myself. Right, Just like Israel, we start off thinking, yeah, I don't need God to be my king. I don't need God to be my deliverer. I can fight my own battles. Just give me a king who can kind of do a, do a job over there, and when I need him, I'll call on him. But I'm really going to save myself. I'm going to live my own life, do my own things. And so I am, in, in my mind, capable of doing my life without God. I don't need God to provide for me. I'll just work more hours. I don't need God to forgive me. It wasn't really that big of a deal. I don't need God to love me because I'll find love in other people. I, I don't need God to, to be there for me because I'm just going to try to numb myself to the reality of my life. I don't need God. Do you hear that? It starts with our arrogance that really shows our ignorance. That we think we can live our life apart from Him. Until we can't. Until we can't. Until Nahash comes knocking on our door and Nahash surrounds our life and he says, I'm going to destroy you unless you come and serve me. And then, all of a sudden, we've met a threat in our life that we can't save ourselves from. 
I don't, I don't know what that is in your life, but at some point in your life, maybe you're in it right now, you come up against something that's bigger than your capabilities. You come up against something in your life where you thought you could save yourself. You thought you could run your life. You thought you could do your thing. You thought you could make yourself successful. You thought you can get yourself out of any trouble. And then you come up against something that's greater than you've ever faced. And now no one can save you. Right? Because you realize, I don't have the ability to save myself from this. Maybe for you, it's, it's a doctor's report where you realize that your, your loved one has months to live, and you don't know how you're going to handle that. Maybe for you, it's, it's your spouse who comes to you and says, I'm done, I'm, I'm out, I'm, I'm leaving this marriage, because whatever this is, this is not a healthy marriage. Or maybe for you, it's, it's financial crisis or, or it's some sin in your life that has caused ruin and devastation. What, whatever it is in your life, there's something that you've come up against and you've realized this whole time I've been trying to live my life as my own Savior. And now, I can't save myself. I can't do it. And so what started in pride now ends in fear. And, and there's despair. See, it's at that point you have to ask, where is God in my life? Where is he? Who, who is he in my life? Who, who is God? Am, am I noticing him? Am I going to him? Because, see, listen, God will often allow you to walk yourself right into that situation until all of a sudden you realize you can't do your life without him. He'll, he'll allow you to walk yourself right into that situation until the threat gets so big, you realize, I can't save myself, and I don't know anybody else who can save me. And you're going to be restless. You're going to be worried. You're going to be anxious. You're, you're going to be afraid until you come to him. It's, it's as uh, St. Augustine once said long ago, he said, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. They're restless. It's going to be restless with your career. It's going to be restless with your family. It's going to be restless with your friends. It's going to be restless until you find your rest in Him. In Him. And listen, where is God? The truth is He never left you. Even if you ignore Him, even if you forget Him, even if you say, I don't want Him, and you push Him away, He's right there with you. And what you see in that moment is His redemptive heart. And this is the second point I want to look at, a redemptive heart, a redemptive heart. Look at verse 5. Look at what happens. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people? That they are weeping. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Now, like I said, Saul, he has now been chosen as king. He's been proclaimed as king, but he really hasn't done anything as king. So he, he has no court he has no throne. He has no palace. And so what does Saul do? I mean, he's got a job, but no job description. So he goes back home and he starts farming. I mean, they, they show us Saul right here hanging out with the oxen, doing his farm work. And then he gets news from the people that somebody is, is uh, threatening them. Right? He's like, why are they weeping? And they say, here's the news. Uh, Nahash is coming to, to threaten and destroy Jabesh Gilead. And then there's a turn that happens in the text. As soon as Saul hears that news, look at what happens in verse 6. It says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
There's only one other time in the Old Testament where this, this phrase, the Spirit of God, rushed upon somebody. There's only one other time. It's in the book of Judges with Samson. And Samson, if you know the story of Samson, was one of the strongest judges in the whole book. He, he was the man who, who delivered them from the greatest threats. And so there's this deliberate connection to Samson right here. Basically, the author is saying Saul is just like Samson, but even greater. And so what you're seeing is now Saul, when he hears this news, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and the Spirit is going to make this farmer into a deliverer. He's going to make him into a deliverer, but notice the progression, because these are the steps of love. I want you to hear this. Saul listens to the people, right? He hears their cries. He hears their weeping. He hears about their oppression, about the threats, about their situation that they can't save themselves from. He hears them first, and then the Spirit of God rushes on him, and he feels something. He feels this deep anger, this righteous anger that this shouldn't be this way, right? And then out of that feeling of anger, this righteous anger, he acts. He moves. He does something. So you see those steps? He listens. He feels. He acts. That's how love always looks. There's this sense that you take in this information, you feel something because of it. You feel anger, you feel compassion, you feel something, and then it moves you to action. And what does Saul do? Saul gathers together an army, 300,000 people from Israel, 30,000 people from Judah. And he goes back to the messengers who brought them this news, and he sends a message to the people in verse 9. He says this, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow... By the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Now, this is Florida. That's like 7 a.m. <laughs> Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. There's that word a second time. It's salvation, right? And the first time you hear it, it's the people crying out and saying, we don't have any Savior. We, we don't have anyone to save us. Give us time to find a Savior. And now the second time you hear it, it's Saul saying, no, you you shall have salvation. This is him giving them the good news they're looking for. You shall be saved. So the people of Jabesh, they hear this. The Bible says they were glad. And then they go back to the Ammonites and they trick them. They, they say, okay, you got us. We couldn't find a savior. Tomorrow morning, we're going to turn ourselves over. Now the Ammonites, they hear this news and they're so proud. They, they don't think anything of it. They, they take the night off. They probably party. They, they don't even take it serious. And this is to let their guard down. And then Saul, the very next morning, takes his 330,000 people, ambushes the Ammonites. They're not expecting it. Completely wipes out the entire army. Their impossible enemy was defeated. But catch this. The enemy wasn't defeated because of Saul. The enemy was defeated because the Spirit of God moved upon Saul to do what God had called him to do. See, the entire scene is meant to show us really God's heart. The entire scene is meant to show us this, their true king, God their king, is still loving them. He's still saving them. He's still moving towards them because Saul, without the power of the Spirit, would have never been able to do that. But because the Spirit rushes on him, God, through Saul, is saving his people. It's showing God's heart. 
See, God's redemptive heart is what moves him to save. It's what moves him to save. We see this redemptive heart most clearly in Christ. If you go to the New Testament in John chapter 11, uh, you may be familiar with the story, but Jesus hears some bad news like Saul. Jesus hears the news of his dear friend Lazarus, who he had been close to, close to Lazarus and his whole family. He hears the news that Lazarus is ill, and because he was delayed to go see Lazarus, the next news he hears is that Lazarus had died. And now Lazarus had been dead for a few days. The Bible says that he was dead for four days. And in their culture, if you were dead three days, that was when you officially got the death certificate. You were officially dead, dead after three days. And so here is Lazarus, dead for four days, There's no hope. Everyone is weeping. Everyone is losing their mind, grieving over his death. And Jesus shows up to the scene. And as as he hears Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, weeping, the Bible says that not only did Jesus weep with them, in verse 33, John 11, it says this, he was deeply moved. Deeply moved mood. It's better translated, he was deeply disturbed. There's this righteous anger, this this frustration that kind of overflows into tears that I just can't handle that this is happening. Right? Jesus, this Savior of all the world, he he is moved by this one man's death. He's, He's angered over it. Why? Because he's weeping over the pain of sin and death. His heart breaks over our brokenness. His heart breaks. And so do you hear it? He listens, he feels, and then Jesus moves towards us. Jesus acts upon it. But our King Jesus is moved by our condition. Just like the Bible says Lazarus was dead, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus was moved by our sin, by our condition. He was moved by our misery. He's moved to righteous anger. Knowing that this isn't the way the world is supposed to be, sin has ruined our hearts, sin has ruined our relationships, sin has ruined our systems, sin has ruined our families, sin has ruined everything. And listen, it is an enemy too powerful for us to save ourselves. It's an enemy that's too powerful for us to say, you know what, I'm going to fight this myself, I'm going to complete this myself. No, we can't do it. But when Jesus sees us in our sin, he declares this. You shall have salvation. You shall be set free. He declares, I've come from heaven to earth to set you free. I've been moved by your cries. I've been moved in compassion and anger towards your sin so that I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to save my people. Yet he wouldn't defeat his enemies with a sword like Saul. He would defeat his enemies with a cross. See, he wouldn't wear a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. He wouldn't wear a robe of splendor, but a robe of shame. He he would defeat our greatest enemy, sin and death, by becoming sin for us. He would take upon himself the guilt of our pride, the shame of our fear. He would take upon himself all the wrath of God that we deserve for our rebellion against our king. He would take it all upon himself so that we could live with the freedom that he earned in his life. Right? When Jesus finished the work on the cross, there is not an enemy left with any power. Jesus defeats the power of sin. Jesus defeats the power of Satan. Jesus defeats even the power of death itself. Jesus wipes out our enemies. 
He defeats them. But the good news of the gospel is you shall have salvation. Listen, this is the promise of God himself, but it only comes through Christ. It only comes through the king who defeated death himself, right? We will never have salvation through ourselves. We will never have salvation through our own works, through our own efforts, through our own uh, priorities or or decisions. We, We will not have salvation that way, but we shall have it through Jesus. We shall have it for the, or from the one who laid down his life for us to earn it for us. That's what Jesus has done. He said, I'm, I'm making this promise to you because it's not based on you. It's based on me. Right? Some of us here today, you've been trying to save yourself. You've been trying to save yourself through your career. You've been trying to save yourself through your kids. You've been trying to save yourself through your good intentions. But Jesus wants you to hear today, you can't save yourself, and that's okay. Because I've come to save you. You've been looking for saviors. There is none but me. There is none but me. And so Jesus opens his arms up and he says, I will. You can. You shall. But it's in me. It's in me. And so how do we receive that? How do we receive that salvation? This is the last point I want to look at. It requires a repentant heart. A repentant heart. See, after the Ammonites were defeated, <laughs> some of the leaders, they, they say, oh yeah, this, this is great. Saul is the king we hope for. Let, let's take out all the people who were against Saul. All the doubters who said, can we really trust this man to save us? Let's go find all of them and we're going to kill him. And Saul says, whoa, 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 whoa. He stops him in verse 11. Look at what he says, or verse 13. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. In other words, they're, they're ready to defend Saul and, and lift him up and praise him. And Saul has a moment of glory here. This is one of the high points in Saul's life. There's not very many. We're going to get into some low points for Saul's life. But this is one of the few high points. Saul decides, you know what? i got to be honest. This, this was not me. It was the Lord who delivered you through me. But this is the Lord's work. It was him who saved you. And this is the third time that word pops up. Right, The first time we see it, who can save us? Nobody. Second time, you shall have salvation. Third time, it's the Lord who saved you. It's the Lord. It wasn't you, it wasn't me, it was him. So then, uh, so then Samuel calls the people to respond to this salvation in verse 14. Look at what he says. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Notice Samuel didn't say, let's go to Gilgal and let's start the kingdom. Let's begin the kingdom. That might have made more sense because remember, Saul is the first king. It may, it may have made sense to say, yeah, let's, let this, let's get this kingdom going. Let's, let's start the kingdom. But he doesn't say that. He says, let's renew the kingdom. Why does he say that? It implies that the kingdom he's talking about is a kingdom that had prior existence. In other words, what scholars believe is he's not talking about Saul's kingdom per se. He's talking about God's kingdom that they're going to now install Saul as the king who who will be used by God over that kingdom. But it's not really Saul's kingdom. It's still God's kingdom. And so what Samuel is saying is what I want us to do is I want us to go to Gilgal and we're going to repent. We're going to say to God that we have tried to live without him as king. 
We've tried to live our own lives and do our own things, but now we're coming back to you, God, and we're going to renew you as king in our life. You and your kingdom are over us. See, repentance is this this change of government, if you will. I go from living my own life and ruling my own life to now I give my life to God and say, I'm I'm renewing you as king in my life. It's a change of mind. It's a change of, of perspective. It's a change of direction. It's to say at one point in my life, I was my own king or, or these other things were my own king, but now God is my king. Do you see? It's the change of direction. Eugene Peterson uh, was a former pastor and author who wrote uh, many books. He, he wrote one book called Running with the Horses, and it's, it's a fantastic book, and in it he tells the story of, um, of a day that he was trying to fix his lawnmower. His lawnmower, uh, the blade was dull, and he was trying to take the blade off to sharpen the blade. And so he's in his backyard, and he's got his lawnmower tipped over, and he's trying to get the blade off the lawnmower, and nothing's working. He's got his big wrench out there, and he's trying to get the nut off, and he's turning and turning, and it's not loosening. And then he says uh, the next thing he tried was he got this big four-foot lead pole out of his garage, and, and he put it on the end of the, of the wrench and used it as leverage to see if he can get more leverage to to push even harder. So he pushed and he pushed and the nut still didn't loosen. So then he got a big rock and he tried to slam the rock on top of the big pole to try to put some weight on it and try to get this thing loosened. And he said, at that point, I got emotionally involved, as we said. I got emotionally involved with a lawnmower and he, he just started to lose his mind. He's getting so angry. It shouldn't be this hard. He said, and then my neighbor walked over and my neighbor started laughing at me because I was I was so angry at a lawnmower. And he said, Eugene, I think, I think I used to have that same lawnmower. And if I remember correctly, the threads are the other direction. And he looked at it and he said, you got to be kidding me. So he flipped the wrench over, turned the other direction, and the nut came right off. It only worked because he changed direction. Because he changed direction. Repentance is a change of direction. That's what it is. That, that's all it is. It, it is a change of direction. Listen, some of us have false repentance in our mind. Like when we think of repentance, what we think of is all kinds of ideas that are, are not really repentance. The first one is we think repentance is regret. In other words, repentance in our minds means I'm, I feel really bad. I gotta beat myself up, I gotta talk bad about myself, I gotta really, you know, judge myself about how terrible of a person I am. And if I can beat myself up enough and think how terrible I am, then maybe God'll forgive me. And so you live with this sense of constant regret and constant self hate. Because you think that's what repentance is. Maybe I can earn it, but listen, that's not repentance at all. Repentance isn't about you. There is sorrow in repentance, but it's not sorrow aimed at you. It's sorrow aimed towards God. There's a godly repentance where I am sorry, but my heart and my mind are towards him. I have changed directions. The second thing is you might think of repentance as resolution, right? I promise to do better next time. That's not really who I am. I, I'm going to do better because I, I know I messed up, and so I promise, I promise, I promise. You try to set up things in your life to make it easier on yourself or to make yourself committed. You want to prove, I have resolved to do differently in my life. And although that is admirable, it's not repentance. 
It's not repentance because repentance, again, has nothing to do with you. It's not about me earning my way back into God's favor because I'm overcommitted. Because if you think that, again, you're self-deceived. You are going to sin again. Repentance is not about your resolve. It's a change of direction. It's not focused on me and my efforts and my commitments. It's focused on who God is and how he's committed to me in Christ. You see that? It's, It's a change of direction. It's a complete 180 to say, this isn't about me. This is about him. This is about him. He is the king who saved me. I didn't save myself. I can't continue to save myself. No one else in my life has saved me. It's only him who is the savior. Salvation belongs to him. And so this morning as we close, Jesus is inviting us to repentance. You know Jesus' first message, his first sermon, he said this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was saying this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he is here. Jesus had come, the king of kings, the Lord of lords is right here in the room. And he says, I don't want you to feel regret. I don't want you to feel uh, that, that you've got to somehow resolve to do better. I want you to just come. Return to me. Repent. Change your direction. You're running from me. Come towards me. That's how you receive the kingdom. That's how you receive this salvation that's already been bought for you. That's how you renew the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. As we just sung earlier, we are grateful, grateful, grateful that you have invited us in. Even as we've rebelled against you, even as we shouted with the crowds on your crucifixion day, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. God, we are so guilty. And we may feel shame for that. We may feel wrong for that and yet you look at us and you say you shall have salvation you shall because you are coming you have come before you're coming again you are the only savior and so lord we pray today that you would help us to stop searching for other saviors help us not in our anxiety and worry run to other things or search for other things help us in our restless hearts to find rest in you to find the savior who really would lay down his life so that we might be set free lord jesus may you call us to that kind of repentance that we might return to our king and renew his kingdom pray in christ's name amen